So uh, before I uh, read this passage and before we talk about it, I want to say that um, when I was preparing for this, I listened to uh, a sermon from a, a former RUF guy named Leo Schuster. He's now a pastor um, of a church. And his thoughts, uh, his the way he um, worked through this text was very helpful for me. And so I borrowed a lot from him. I just want to, in full disclosure, uh, say that. And um, what we are doing, though, tonight is we're continuing in what we've been doing all semester. We've been going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is his uh, most drawn-out section of teaching uh, to anyone, really. Um, it started out, and he had kind of addressed his disciples or his closest followers. But as the, as the passage progresses... Um, you begin to see Jesus addressing other people. Supposedly, I mean, as we can imagine, people would gather around as they often did whenever he spoke. And so by this point, certainly there were people who were outsiders who probably weren't believing in him or following him or anything, but were curious about what he was uh, saying. So that's what would have been present. Um, anxiety, man. There's a couple things that I'm, not, that I'm not going to say tonight. I just want to be very clear about this. What I'm not saying as we talk about this is that um, the Bible is anti-medicine when it comes to things like anxiety. Um, The Bible, in fact, doesn't really say anything about that. Um, But elsewhere, uh, you know, the Bible would, I think, lend credence to the idea that wisdom, where wisdom would say, yes, you need medicine. Our bodies get sick. We go to a doctor, we get medicine. Um, I think it's fine to think that our minds also at times uh, are not functioning properly. Chemically, things may be off. And so there are, you know, if a psychiatrist tells you there is an appropriate time for medicine, I'm going to defer Uh, to him or her in that way. Um, I think, as is always the case, um, purely medical things aren't always just the solution. A lot of times there's counseling, there's therapy, there's good pastoral work that can go alongside those things. Uh, So I want to say that. Um, I also want to say that when we think about anxiety, uh, which by nature, and we'll talk about this, has to do with the future, what I'm not saying is that To think about the future or to try and plan it all is necessarily unspiritual or or bad. Okay, There's a certain amount of obviously planning for the future, thinking about your schedule next semester, even a job when you graduate. Some of those things are healthy. When I talk about anxiety, and and as we'll talk about in a sec, uh, I'm, I'm more referencing kind of the obsessive nature of bringing all of tomorrow's fears and what ifs and importing them into today in that obsessive sense that is paralyzing that so many of us experience. So let me, um, let me pray for us real quick before we read this passage, and then we'll look at it. God, I pray that um, as we uh, look at your word and as uh, Jesus speaks to us about anxiousness and as he calls us out of our anxiousness, I pray that we would hear from you and that we would... Um, hear your spirit speaking to us personally and that we would hear you, um, your kind invitation that invites us to rest in you and who you are and what you've done for us. I pray very specifically for those of us in here who are anxious right now and who come in with a motor that just never seems to stop in a mind that races, in a heart that is perpetually uneasy. I pray that you would meet that person, that you would bring calmness to their spirit. I pray that you would uh, really minister them to them through your word. I pray for those of 
us in here who, uh, that might not be us. I pray that we would listen. You give us ears to listen because we have friends who struggle in this way. And I pray that you would give us tenderness and ability to walk with them in the midst of uh, what so often is a very paralyzing and and deep struggle. So um, we ask these things confidently because we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we go, Matthew chapter 6, beginning verse 25. Jesus speaking, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass on the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's Word. Look, because of the very nature of anxiety and what it does, and so when I say anxiety, worry, I may use those words interchangeably, um, because of the very nature of anxiety, um, some of you are actually anxious about what I'm about to say about anxiety, right? You're coming, uh, maybe hoping that tonight's the night when it all goes away. I, I hope that for you. Um, I'm hesitant to overpromise, but God is able to do things like that. Um, but you're here and you're like, ah, I wonder what he's about to say. I wonder if it's going to help me or not. Um, Well, look, Jesus tells you three times not to be anxious, right? Don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. Isn't that enough? Don't you just need someone to look at you and say, stop doing that? Uh, No, (laughs) Uh, that's not always helpful, right? And so I think what we're going to see through this is that Jesus is actually being quite a bit more tender than that in his words. And as he says three times over, do not be anxious, it's almost like he's extending his hand as an invitation, inviting us into a place of trust in resting in Him. So as we look at this passage, I want us to see three things about anxiety. It's pretty straightforward. It's on your sheet in front of you. First is, what is it? Let's talk about the nature of anxiety and worry. Secondly, uh, what does it do? How does it affect us? What does it do to us? And uh, thirdly, what do we do about it? Perhaps most importantly for us tonight. So what is anxiety? Um, Anxiety is triggered... Anxiety is, is, I'm sorry, anxiety is a response that's triggered by a threat of some sort. I'm going to say it again. Anxiety is a response that is triggered by a threat of some sort. When Jesus offers a summary, of, uh, a summary statement in verse 34, he's giving us a clue about the nature of anxiety. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Anxiety is future-oriented. It's saying there is something coming 
that presents a threat to you and triggers this response of anxiety or of worry inside of you. Um, I heard one person describe it this way. They said that it's like a grenade lobbed from the future into today. And it disrupts all of the peace and the harmony that we uh, want to experience in the here and now. So it's like a grenade that comes in from tomorrow, lands here right in front of us, and just destroys everything. And it messes with our life, and things don't ever seem like they're going to be back to normal at all. It disrupts that peace. I think that makes sense uh, for those of us who uh, struggle with anxiety. Um, This is a struggle that I have experienced from time to time. It's not one that has... um, you know, dominated my life as it has uh, for some of yours, as as you share with me. Um, But I do know on a small level that feeling of just wanting, wanting it not to be true and yet wondering how it can ever not be true of you. Um, at 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 its essence then, anxiety or worry is a grab for control. It's a grab for control. And so to relate that to what I've already said, It's that thing in the future that we look out and say, I want to control that. I want to have my hands in that. I want to somehow affect the outcome of this thing that's coming. And Jesus hints at this when he says in verse 27, he says, which of you by being anxious can add an hour to your life? He's getting at this idea that there are simply things that in our world that we can't do anything about, yet because of um, what we'll talk about in just a sec, we want to, we long to have control over those things. And so where does this come from? Where does this desire for control, and at times this inordinate desire for control, come from? Well, I actually think that it's part of the very fabric of our being. I think it's part of the very fabric of our being, and here's what I mean by that. That in the very beginning of what the Bible, how the Bible lays out history, God says, or the Bible says, that God created man, male and female, in his image. And what that means, that word image means, is that God, who himself throughout Scripture is seen as the king, creates us, humans, in his image, and he calls us to rule over the world like, like vice kings like vice regents over the whole creation. And so he looks at Adam and Eve in the beginning and says, the whole world is yours, tend to it, take care of it, have babies, multiply, it's yours. Rule. And what happened very early on, and so there is a right desire for control to order the things around us. But what happened in that first account with mankind was that Adam and Eve didn't want, they didn't want to be under God. They didn't like the vice part of their title. They didn't just want control, they wanted the control. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to usurp their position and jump ahead of who he called them to be and who he told them they were. And that's exactly what Satan came tempting them with. Look, if you eat of this tree, you can be like God. And they went for it. And from that moment on, all sorts of disorder entered the world. All sort of chaos came in. Things were no longer right. Relationally, things were broken. 
As we looked at other people, the relationship with Adam and Eve, they were scared of each other. They were naked and they felt that and they were embarrassed. They hid from God. That relation between man and God was severed. It was broken. And in that sense of my relationship to myself, they felt shame. They no longer, when they thought about themselves and the world kind of right around them, they felt that things weren't right. The Bible calls this sin. It began to come in and it infected and messed up everything. It was this inordinate desire for control. Um, David, David Powelson, who's an author and, and counselor, says that, that worry, or what we're calling anxiety, assumes the possibility of control over the uncontrollable. That it assumes the possibility of control over the uncontrollable. And what this means is that for those of you who, who really get this kind of day in and day out, you, this is real. That you look at things in the future or things around you in your world and you can identify that thing is uncontrollable. But it's almost as if you can't stop yourself from trying to, try, trying to control it. And getting your arms around and saying, I know it is, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try to do something about that. He goes on to say that worry and control are two sides of the same coin. We want to control things. And because we can't, we worry about it. Because we can't actually control those things which are uncontrollable, what we do with that is we worry about it. We become anxious about it. Our heart races. Our mind is filled with ideas and possibilities and what-ifs. We can't really ever concentrate on what's right before us. There's a, uh, there's a story that comes out of the time of the Protestant Reformation, which is celebrated on October 31st in history, so just last week. Um, but leading up to Martin Luther you know, nailing his uh, 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, um, there was a guy who kind of was a, a cohort of Martin Luther. In fact, many people say he was the predecessor to Martin Luther and kind of led the charge. His name was Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon, um, as you might imagine, uh, who was, he was inside the Catholic Church and he had sought for reform for many years. He wanted things to change. He wasn't just wanting to go out and be this cavalier dude who, who changed everything, you know, started this whole new sect of Christianity. But as he looked at what was happening around him, this inevitable change that was happening, um, he was pretty anxious about some things. <laughs> like the whole, the, the worldwide church at that point was about to cast him out. He was anxious. And Martin Luther looked at him and said, Philip, he said, let Philip cease to attempt to rule the world. And some of y'all need to hear from this passage that you need to cease to attempt to try and rule the world. Now, again, we're going to give some background to that and to how that actually happens but some of you are simply trying to control things that are at work in this world, which you recognize I can do nothing about, but which you feel unable to not try and do something about. So that's, what, um, that's how we feel about anxiety. We feel this desire and need to rule and to be the sovereign of our own world. So what does anxiety do to us? Um, well, nothing really, or at least nothing good. Um, anxiety doesn't have a lot of good uh, side benefits that we get to experience. Um, and what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that anxiety is remarkably 
impotent. It's remarkably powerless um, to bring us any sort of relief or comfort about anything. And that's frustrating to us because we see that. We see that anxiousness doesn't do you any good, doesn't do me any good. I can feel myself getting anxious about various things in my life. I can look at that and say, that's stupid. Brent, don't be anxious about that. And yet I know that at times I feel powerless to escape that. So how does anxiety mess with us? What does it do to us? Well, instead of it increasing our lifespan, it actually decreases our lifespan. Things like ulcers, things like... Um, really, in its worst cases, just paralyzing worry and, and doubt and depression. We'll talk about depression in just a second. So the other side of that coin. Um, it pushes us away from people. Right? How does it do that? Well, what happens with anxiety is that it comes in and it takes away what, what Leo, the guy I was talking about, what he calls, it takes away all the margin in your life. It takes away your ability to just be free and jovial and to have fun. Because all of that kind of what otherwise might be free space or free time is consumed. It feels like this cloud has come in and moved into your life and you can do nothing about it. And your heart races and it goes and it goes and it goes. Our margin is taken up with worry. Um, Leo says that, that anxiety is like the neighborhood bully uh, that, that comes in and who has us pinned down. It's on top of us. It has us pinned down. We feel like we can't do anything. And Jesus here in this passage, and we're going to see in just a minute, he's coming and trying to lift it off of us, saying it doesn't have to be that way. And he's calling us and inviting us after that. And the things that that bully says are things like this, are you really ever going to have real friends? Are you really ever going to have depth of relationship? You know that no one around you really likes you. And so that motor begins to turn. <gasps> what if I don't have friends? What if all these people around me are just being nice to me? And they don't actually really like me? Or what if, what if you never get a job? That thought of, for some of you, it's three years away. For some of you, it's, it's eight months away. And that motor is turning, you're saying, what if I never get a job? Or what if, uh, what if I actually have a job, and yet I don't like that job? So you take what even might be a good thing, God's provision of a job, and you turn it and make it a bad thing. Make it something to worry about. What about your image? Why do I look this way? I wonder if I'll ever look different. I wonder if that part of my body will ever be better, or that part of my body will ever be bigger or smaller or whatever. Anxious, anxious. The motor's running. It's running. Will you ever have a spouse? These are the things the bully says. Are you ever going to get married? Don't, you're, not, you're not worthy of that. No one's ever going to really like you in that way. The motor turns, it turns, and it goes. The bully has us pinned down, pinned down with every question about the future. It feels like we're absorbing a fresh blow. Like he's just taking another swipe at us and we feel it. It's like a gut shot. So it shouldn't surprise us then that there's a very real connection between anxiety and anxiousness and depression. And here's why. Because when we think about all these questions, when you guys try to process all of the things that you could potentially be worried about and which some of you are worried about, 
you quickly realize that I don't have answers to those things. I don't know how so many of those things are going to end. And so that, that uncertainty, that worry comes into your life and it literally it weighs down on you. It, it depresses your spirit. It takes joy from you. That's the, that's the very definition of depression. It feels like this black cloud has moved in and it renders you utterly useless and motionless. I can't bear the weight of this. It's too much. It brings great sorrow when you realize there are just so many things about which you can do nothing. It disrupts the peace that we so often long for. Our life, for those of us who feel this anxiousness, our life becomes consumed then by what ifs. Every single thing that can possibly be formed around the question, what if, serves to further the anxiety and the uncertainty. There's this fascinating statistic. Um, actually, one thought before that. That um, when all the what-ifs begin to come in, those things about the future we don't know, they move themselves into the present and it becomes our reality. Okay, That those what-ifs, which by definition are out there sometime to come, what we do with our anxiety and what happens is they come into our present. They're imported to our life like a bad virus, and they become what we know and what we experience. The statistic uh, I was going to start talking about is this, that um, if there was a dense fog that covered seven city blocks, seven square blocks of a city, and was 100 feet deep, tall, however you want to think about it, if all of the moisture in that fog were gathered into a, a single place, it would be less than a single glass of water. That seven square blocks of city blocks of fog, 100 feet deep, if it were gathered into a single place, would be less than one glass of water. The reality is that there's just not that much moisture in it. It's just a little bit. But it seems so pervasive. Anxiety tries to reduce our life to the crises before us, the things that are coming. In reality, those things are just these select things from our future, but when they're imported into our present, they absolutely define everything. They feel consuming to us. And it works like this, that we can't focus on anything. That when you sit down to study, or when you sit down to, to accomplish a task in your room, you think, oh, gosh, there's that thing I want to look at on Facebook. And so you open up Facebook on your computer and you start to look on Facebook. And then your roommate comes in and um, she says, hey, I read this article. Um, what do you think about it? And they start to explain this thing to you. And you get drawn into it. And all of a sudden you're talking about an article. And then your friend, what she really wanted to talk about was a boy that likes her. And she starts talking about this boy that likes her. And all of a sudden you're engrossed in that thing. And then you get pissed because that was a boy that you liked. And so you're in this other thing. And all of a sudden you're depressed because you're thinking about this other thing. And all you want to do is go to sleep because you're depressed. But you can't sleep because now you're anxious because you never actually studied about the thing that you're supposed to study about. Right? It's just perpetual like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like we feel it. It's like having 10,000 windows open on our computer and we just click, 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 click. And before we know it, it's two hours later. Oh, and we're paralyzed by that. Anxiety does that in all areas of our life. It comes in and it fills the void, the margin, the empty space. 
And by definition, you start seeing all these things and worrying about them. Um, If you've ever noticed, um, in a circus, in the big lion show, you know, which at some points is the hallmark, the pinnacle of the circus show, the lion keeper or tamer, whatever they call him, who goes in there always has a stool. Always has a stool with them. And at some point during the show, they will get the stool and they will raise it up and they will walk toward the lion. And they'll walk right up to the lion and put those four, I've got five fingers, that's hard, uh, four things right over the lion's snout, right over its mouth. And you'd think that the lion would just open up its mouth and destroy this and eat the chair and probably eat the person. But the reason that, I guess I trust the experts on this. I don't know any better. The reason they say that the, the lion tamer is, is able to do this is because when that, when that chair is coming toward it, the lion isn't able to just focus on one of the things. He or she is focused on all of them, and it kind of sends them into this paralysis. We live with this four or 400 prong thing coming at us, Instead of allowing us to focus on one thing, we look at all of them and it sends us into paralysis. So anxiety does this. It robs you of your ability to live life. So what do we do about it? Well, there are three things that I want to suggest that Jesus helps us think through in what we, live, uh, what we do about it. Um, in verse 26, Jesus says, look at the birds. That's right. Uh, Jesus' suggestion, his cure for you and your anxiety, is to become a bird watcher. I'm not making this up. What does he mean by that? Look at the flowers. What does he mean by this? The word here that Jesus uses for look is this more full word that means consider, ponder, be thoughtful, about these things. Look at the birds. Ponder them. Look at these flowers. Ponder them. Think about them. That same word is used of Joseph whenever Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to him and said, uh, and I want to sit down for this one. Uh, I had an angel come to me and tell me that I'm pregnant right now. I'm going to have a baby, even though we haven't had sex, even though we're not married, I'm going to have a baby, and the baby's going to be the savior of the whole world. <laughs> the, next pass, the next verse after that says, and Joseph pondered these things. <laughs> he thought about them, right? He's like, uh, yeah, I guess so, probably for a long time. <laughs> he considered them. What could this mean? And Jesus is saying, look around you. Look at this this magnificent creation that God has made. And consider the beauty of the birds and how God takes care of them. Consider these flowers. who Even the richest man in the world, Solomon, in all of his splendor and beauty, doesn't compare to their beauty. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that the antidote to anxiety is theology. And I don't mean this just like dry thing that you can take a class on. I mean, Jesus is saying that the antidote to your anxiety is studying who God is, is studying God. And what he's saying is, 
He, he is making this argument from what's called from the lesser to the greater. He's looking and saying, okay, hey, zoom out from your own tunnel vision on yourself and all of your problems and all of your, and all of your worries. And zoom out and look at this world. God cares about the birds. God cares about the flowers. And if He cares about them, you're so much greater than they are. You're so much more beautiful and important to Him than they are. Of course He cares about you. Of course He's going to take care of you. Of course He knows what's going to happen in your future. The doctrine that this is pointing us to is, is this great doctrine of God's providence, which is God's, means God's providing, that God is sovereign. He is the king, remember. And that means that he is absolutely in control of everything in this world right now and in the world that is to come tomorrow, the next day. There is nothing that is going to surprise God and Jesus is calling us to rest in that. He's calling us to look at the very nature of who God is and His care for the little things. And saying, you can trust Him because you are so much bigger and greater than that. You are of so much more value to Him than the flowers and the birds. A lot of you grew up in this area of the country kind of the, the heartland right here where um, agriculture is a huge part of the economy. It's a huge part maybe of, of some of your own lives, your family's lives, probably dating back into the centuries. And you know that a necessary part of agriculture is having adequate irrigation. And so any good farmer will have many, many sources and backup sources of irrigation for their plants. Because look, another reality of this part of our country is severe drought. And the last couple of years have been a wonderful example of that, terrible example of it, I guess. Just severe drought, months and months without rain. Think about this. If you're a farmer and you wait until the drought comes to then go out scrambling, figuring out, oh my gosh, I guess I should dig a well, then what's going to happen? You're going to lose your crop. The damage is going to be done if you wait until months into that drought to finally put some water on it. The damage is done. It's irreparable. So any good farmer will always be drilling wells, will always be looking for sources of water. And what Jesus here, I think, is getting that is that the normal course of the Christian life is that, look, when things are fine, when... when when life is okay, and even when life is tough, we always ought to be digging wells into the, into the nature of God's character. We always ought to be pursuing these sources of life. We always ought to be studying Him, studying His Word, reading the Bible, joining Bible studies, reading good books that talk about the Bible, going to church, finding a church that preaches the Word faithfully. Because God is calling us, Jesus here in this passage is calling us to get to know God. Because, friends, when those dry spells come, there is only one thing that can quench your parched soul. And it is God Himself as He has made Himself known in His Word. You know that your best attempts at just pulling it together don't work. 
or that they only work for a short time. Jesus is calling us into something greater. Christianity, therefore, is not this exercise of checking your brain at the door and just coming to have this emotional experience, which is this shallow watering so that something can sprout up quickly and then die. I am all for emotion. I am not saying Christianity is anti-emotion. It's absolutely not. But I think the fullness of what Scripture gets at is that we have to engage with our minds also. That we have to become acquainted with God as He has revealed Himself in His Word. And that is a rational process. It does involve faith. Jesus here looks at them and says, Oh, ye of little faith. He is not shaming them saying, Come on, y'all. Get it together. Start you know, pulling yourself together. He's saying, You just don't know. You don't know how rich God is and how merciful and kind He is. Get to know Him. So that when that dry day comes, you can draw on the depths, the well of His character and His goodness for you. Scripture asks us to look look back at what God has already done. So what has He done? How can we know that God actually does care for us? Well, Jesus, as we find out in the Bible, Jesus, God Himself did the unthinkable, really. He left His heavenly comforts where He was robed in splendors of majesty. God Himself emptied Himself of that and came down, became a servant, took off His heavenly glory, was stripped of that, became a servant, became poor, lived a life of temptation, and then at the end, took what brings the most anxiousness and the most worry and anxiety for anybody. He looked right in the face of death and he said, yeah, I'm going to take that too for you. And so on the cross, he stripped naked so that we can be clothed. He experiences what, most, what should be most terrifying for all of us, an alienation from God, hell itself on the cross, Jesus takes that so that you never have to be anxious about that. So that you can rest secure that God is never going to leave you nor forsake you. If you're in Him, if you're in Jesus, if you believe in Him. Jesus here argues, as I mentioned, from the lesser to the greater, if God takes care of the flowers, He's going to take care of you. And in Romans 8.32, Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. He starts his argument saying, Look, if He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for you, how will He also not with Him graciously give you everything? He's saying God has already done what is most Impressive, what is ought to bring you the most assurance of God's love and care for you. Yes, He's going to take care of these smaller things. He absolutely cares about all the details and the minutia of your future, and you can rest in Him, you can trust in Him. So we need to get the Word into us. It needs to take up residence in us. Paul says in Colossians 3 that we need to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And we can say, yes, I want that. I want peace. And the very next word, he, the very next verse, he says, let the word of Christ d- dwell in you richly. 
Friends, you cannot have the peace of Christ without Christ Himself. You do not get the peace of God without the Word of God in you. So we have to, we have to look. Secondly, we have to talk, and these last two are shorter. We have to talk to ourselves, actually. <laughs> Some of you are like, no, that, that's craziness. <laughs> craziness is when you talk to yourself. Well, that's kind of what we have to do. Because in those moments when the anxiousness comes and when the worry comes, we draw upon the wells of who God is and what He's already done in the person and work of Jesus. And we have to do this exercise of what's called preaching the gospel to ourselves. What is the gospel? It means the good news. What's the good news? That God has already taken care of what ought to give you the most worry. He's already taken that out of the realm of something that you have to be scared about. And because of that, you can trust Him that He's going to take care of you in the smaller things. He's calling you to trust Him for a job. He's calling you to trust Him that if He wants you to be married one day, He's going to provide a spouse for you. He's calling you to trust Him for friends, that to move toward people and be vulnerable with them is the way forward. And to invite others into your life. Paul said, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, to cast our anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So yes, we talk to ourselves, but we also talk to God. God, I'm anxious right now. I'm worried about all these things. Please come. Please come. Take my anxiousness from me. Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, by praying to God, cast your cares on Him. Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Don't you want that? Don't you want peace? Scripture is calling us to throw our anxiety on God. And to ask Him to flood us with His peace. And lastly, Jesus calls us to seek. Verse 33. The quintessential idea that Jesus is getting at is that He is saying, life is more precious than all of these little things that we worry about. There is more to life than these things. Life is supposed to be about the King and His kingdom. And Jesus calls us to seek. It's an ongoing verb. Be seeking this. Because, friends, when you fill your mind with with God, with thoughts of Him and how much He loves you and how forgiving He is of all your sin and how He has the power to take your shame and guilt, when you fill yourselves with, with Him and His magnificence and His hugeness, then that begins to crowd out the worry in your life because He is so massive. And wonderful, it literally pushes the other things out. It restores you to sanity. It restores the margin in your life. Do you know the story in the Bible where Mary and Martha, Jesus shows up and, and, and Mary or Martha is really excited and she starts serving Jesus, tries to get the dinner together and everything, and Mary just goes and sits at his feet and learns from it. He's teaching her. And Martha's like, Mary, what are you doing? Jesus is here. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, she has chosen the better portion. She is doing the better thing. She is sitting at the king's feet and getting to know him. 
Jesus is calling us to seek Him. We were made to be those little kings and queens. We were made for control, just not the control. When we live for Jesus and when we seek to advance His kingdom and to figure out what that means for us in our lives, He restores to us a right and sane view of the future. He restores our sanity. He restores our mind. And He calls us into a healthy view of what's coming. J.R. Tolkien says this, says, Our final joys lie lie beyond the walls of this world. Friends, when you focus on the King and when His beauty and His splendor begins to creep into you and takes over in your life, you'll realize that the one who controls all things has everything under control. And because of that, you can hand over your desire for control to Him. He can handle it. He's already doing it. And He's calling us to acknowledge Him in that. This is is Jesus' invitation to come to Him and to trust in what He's offering you, the peace of God. Let's pray.